Welcome to Intangibles Podcast. I'm Steve Berg, your host. Success is driven by how as much as by what. How we communicate, how we lead, how we relate to our environment are all vitally important. Intangibles is a podcast that explores the underlying traits, qualities, and behaviors that improve the how. This is accomplished by finding the people who have studied and been successful practicing these soft skills and having informed conversations with them to get to what is learnable. Let's begin. There are many famous quotes about learning. Uh, My favorite is from Abraham Lincoln who says, Towering genius disdains a beaten path. In my opinion, there's something very tongue-in-cheek about it. Lincoln is certainly not talking about gen- uh, talking to geniuses alone. He's basically saying, if you want to master something, don't let anything stop you. Just go figure it out. The open question, of course, is, well, how do you do that? My guest today is Nick Velasquez. He wrote a book specifically answering that question. It's not a philosophical book or a rhetorical book. It's, it reads almost more like a manual on how to learn. Not surprisingly... Nick is a passionate learner and a devoted student of mastery who speaks multiple languages. He's a creator of the popular blog, unlimitedmastery.com, where he writes about learning science, peak performance, creativity, and mastering skills. His writing has been featured in publications such as Time and Thought Catalog. The name of Nick's book is Learn, Improve, Master, How to Develop Any Skill and Excel at It. Hi, Nick. Nice to meet you. Hi, Steve. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on Intangible Podcast. Um, in many ways, your discussion with me, uh, I think, is going to be the linchpin for so many of the other folks that I've talked to in the past. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm anxious and apprehensive all at the same time about this particular discussion. So I'm sure you'll bear with me. Um, let's start with the big question, right? What is the importance of continuing and never stopping our learning development? Sure. So I think that can be divided in two parts. So one is the professional and the other one is the personal. On the professional side, with with industries changing at the pace they're changing, um, only the people that can adapt and learn are the ones that are going to be able to survive and thrive. So it's no longer the era of you learn one skill and that's going to set you up for life. Now, in any profession, you have to learn multiple skills throughout your career. And so becoming a better learner, that's what's going to set you apart from anyone else. Now, on the personal side, I think it's more important than ever to have hobbies and different interests. And we see it more now with the pandemic and a lot of people going insane because they have nothing to do. And mostly the people that never developed a habit, a a hobby, never took on an interest of something else, either martial arts or painting or writing, reading. So on the personal side, learning how to learn and never stop learning is what gives us that extra edge on satisfaction with life. Um, I don't know what I would do without my hobbies. And I saw it, for example, with my dad who didn't have many hobbies. And after he retired, he just didn't know what to do. And I felt really bad about that. But on my side, I just, I can't find the time to even keep up with all the hobbies that I have, and it's all outside my profession. And I think that just brings so much um, joy into my life. So on the personal side, that's why we should never stop learning. Yeah, the, the joy 
absolutely insatiable curiosity. Hopefully, um, you've definitely heard people say, uh, when you stop learning, you're dead. Yeah. Uh, and so I hope I never get there. Um, so look, I, th there's some kind of just immutable principles of learning. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to call them out and, um, you know, kind of walk through them and then you can just add your thoughts if that's all, if that's all right. That's a, that's sure. acceptable. Sounds good. Great. All right. One of the principles is that the brain adapts and develops based on whatever situation it seems to find itself in. It acts more like a muscle than anything else. Um, you know, what's that about? Why, why is that? Sure. So that's called neuroplasticity. And the idea is, well, we have two different systems for learning. So one is our genes and is a transgenerational um, system that is very inflexible. So there are things that we already have, like our physiology and some behavioral traits that are passed on through generations. And then the other one is a flexible system, which is our learning brain, which allows us to adapt to changing circumstances within our lifetime. Um, so that's just, that is the basis of the brain. It can adapt to whatever is happening, to whatever you need to learn or want to learn within your lifetime. Um, so the brain will rewire itself depending on what skills you're learning or what you repeated, repeatedly do. So if I'm playing the cello, for example, uh, and I spend years playing the cello, then the area of the brain responsible for the left-hand side, which is usually uh, people for the fingering board, sure the fingers are moving a lot, then that area is going to enlarge and become more active. So the brain is redirecting resources to the parts that you're demanding more from. Um, same thing, there is a study that came from England about the London cab drivers who they needed some really insane spatial navigation skills to get their license. So they need to know how to go from any point, from point A to point B in the city without any map or anything and knowing the fastest route. So after they complete their training, their skills, their, their navigation skills are very impressive. And what they found in their brain is like the area responsible for spatial navigation skills became larger, is much larger than in non-cab drivers. And even more interesting is the longer their career behind the wheel, the more pronounced the effect. So all this is showing like the brain keeps redirecting energy and resources to what we demand most from. Yeah. Whatever uh, your skill is, the brain is going to adapt to that. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yeah, obviously, particularly comforting um, if you're about to kind of embark on more challenging, uh, you know, ideas notionally. Um the second principle uh, is that learning in general, it's about connecting things, right? Connecting some known things maybe with some unknown things in order to, you know, almost like build out a scaffolding over time. Yes. It's, it's, the principle is association. All learning has to do with association. So, for example, um, a very basic example, you would see fire when you were a kid and then you touch it and then you got burned. Now, now you make that association. That it's technically learning. Same thing with a language. You hear a noise and then you start putting together the, what the noise represents. So for example, the sound mom, that's just a sound. But with some training with our parents, we start to associate that sound with the concept of mom. And later, as we repeat those connections, they almost become impossible to break. 
if I say mom and that's your native language, English is your native language, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's impossible. You cannot hear it as just a sound anymore. So these connections get stronger over time, but it's all based on association. And I think that's important to know, right? Because you can create your own associations, right? You can, you can almost shortcut that process by going, aha, this is an association that I can make. Um, you know, it's not really a hack, honestly, because I don't think there's a such thing as a learning hack, but um, you can decide what the best associations are for you. Yes, correct. And we do that with all languages. So if you're studying another language, it's the same thing as you're starting, uh, studying your first one. It's just that we don't remember learning our first language. But if you study a foreign language, then it's, okay, now I understand this process. Like, this, these are just noises. And then you start understanding, and you're watching a TV show. It's like, oh, I know that word. And it's just associations because they're arbitrary. There's nothing in a sound that is embedded in a concept. We need to make the association from scratch. Right. All right. So I've made an initial association that the third principle, I think, is that the brain groups things before processing once those associations start to become more complex. Right. You, you, you almost kind of like um, instead of, you know, well, I'm sure you're going to explain it, but it's just more easy to take in one thing as a group than it is to take, take in three individual things. Yes. So that's called chunking. And it's a way for us to process information uh, more efficiently. So the same idea, if we look at uh, written language, we have letters, and then when we combine those letters into words, then you, un- you process the word much easily than just a, a series of letters. And same when you put words together to form sentences. So we're starting to chunk things together. Same if you're driving, when you're first learning how to drive, then making a turn is very complicated. You're thinking, okay, start a flasher, reduce speed, uh, turn the wheel, all these things. But as you get better, then all becomes part of one same group of movement. Uh, So it's just one single motion. We group the things together. Um, This also helps with memory. And it's usually why phone numbers are put into different groups. So you have like three numbers, then four numbers, four numbers, because that's easier to remember that if you just give a series of numbers without a separation or a grouping. Same thing with credit card numbers and things like that. So it's much easier for us to group pieces of information into like a more manageable chunk. Right. And so um, the interesting thing is once you're kind of hinting almost at the automaticness of it, like over time we stop, we kind of shift from thinking about each thing to it just becoming part of us, right? And I, you know, I think that's actually where the, you know, I, we're going to talk a little bit about mastery later, but I think that's where yes. that happens, right? When it starts being second nature to you, right? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, I think the example that you brought up uh, was walking, right? You know, you don't think about that. Yes, we don't think about walking anymore. Uh, it became automatic. But if you look at a, um, a child trying to walk, it's very difficult for them once they're learning. But after so many years of doing it, you don't think about it twice. It's just, it's just something you do. So that becomes the automatic processing. And so each of the principles build on each other. So first is you associate things. It's like, how do you move your arms? How do you move your legs to walk? And then the chunking is like, now you don't have to think about just your 
arms or just your legs, but now they're grouped into one single motion. And last is the becoming automatic. Now you don't, don't think about it anymore. It goes from your conscious mind to your unconscious. And now your conscious mind is free to process other information. So you can do things while you're walking. You right. can be talking, you can do other things because now walking is just very automatic. Right. Yes. Hey, there's a ball coming toward me. All right, I'm going to move my foot so that I can stop this ball from going past me. But I don't have to worry about, oh, pick up right foot, turn slightly to the right, move it out six inches. Exactly. That, 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 you know, now I, I, I'm already, I'm, my balance is unconsciously already happening, right? Um, yes. Good. All right. So um, moving on from principles a little bit, the, in the book, you described the learning process in kind of a number of steps. And, and you know, we were talking beforehand that you almost can't remove a step um, like I, I, I feel compelled to talk about each one of those is to go, well, yes. the third step is the best, the most interesting step of the learning process. You can't, you can't really do that. So I'm going to, I'm going to go through them. Um, maybe the clean ways for me to talk about realizations that I gathered from those different steps, but for, we got to, got to sure. cover the steps first, right? The learning process, um, as you've described it is kind of your initial exploration of your topic, right? I want to learn, uh, how to play the guitar. All right. You know, I've got to do some initial work to think about what is this about? Maybe find some sources. The second is kind of understanding the requirements, things that you're going to, to need, things that you're going to have to learn. Um, maybe there's, um, some deconstruction that happens there. We can probably talk about that in a sec. Um, obviously there's essentials and you're going to have to kind of just take as part of you until they do become a little bit more practical because, and frankly, you know, I would imagine that that is the, among the hardest part, right? The very beginning when you're first doing something that is unnatural to you until it becomes more natural. Um, and then, you know, practice, right? Just repetition, significant. Um, well, and I, and one of the things I really want to talk about is, um, yeah, practicing, practicing with a purpose, um, yes. then getting to the point where you actually can perform it, right? Oh, I can play the chorus. I can play the bridge. Wait, I can actually, I can actually play a whole song in front of a person. They'll recognize that song. It may not be perfect, but they'll be like, Oh, wow, you've made great progress since, you know, you could play the E chord. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, like I said, the last piece is performance. Um, so like I said, we're, we're really broad here's some, here's some realizations that I made as I was looking at it. So in any learning, um, undertaking, uh, we will need, uh, habit, right? We need to make, uh, this a practice every single day. Um, that, you know, I pick that out of the very first topic, which is explore, explore, but I'm going to, I'm going to need to make sure that, that I, I'm not just doing this sporadically. We're not really going to learn anything, right? Nothing's going to stick. Yes. So, yeah, a couple of things about that. So let's go through the process and then we'll spend more time on the practice side. So the beginning is the exploration is just getting an idea of what you're getting yourself into. So if you want to play guitar, but you want to play because your dream is to, is to play in front of an audience, uh, you need to see that that's only a, a very small percentage of what it takes to learn how to play guitar. Like for any hour that you see someone on stage, there are countless hours practicing and learning the instrument. So sometimes we're like very excited about the end result and we think that that's what we want. But if we really saw the 
the amount of time that is spent in solitary practice, maybe we'll think about it twice. Like, do I really want to spend all those hours learning scales? Um, so that's going to determine if it, if that's really the skill you want to get into or not. Say people that have this dream about becoming a writer and they think they go into a cabin and, and they're just typing away all their thoughts and it's all coming clean. No, writing is mostly editing. It's rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. So if you don't enjoy that part, this is the part of the exploration that is so important. What is this skill really about? What does the practice entail? And, and then you're saying that needs to be done up front, right? Yes, I would say so because sometimes we find out that the skill is not really what we want. So an example that I give is I wanted to learn how to fly a plane because I thought that was going to give me a sense of freedom and just carefree. And then uh, I realized that no, there is some careful planning, um, a study of the uh, the weather and all this airspace regulations. It didn't feel like freedom. It was still fun, but it's not what I was looking for. So that's the idea of exploration. Is it, do, is it really the skill that I want to learn? Or I'm just in love with the idea of it. So we need to know what it really is. Right. So, all right. Yeah. So I took a jump there, didn't I? I, I assumed that I, it was something that I cared about, but I, but I went to, I said to myself, all right, look, I care about this enough, but just make sure you know, you're going to have to practice every day. Right. Yes. It's not going to be great. It's not going to be easy. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I think you've, I think you've summarized so it really well. So one idea is that it, um, if you want to learn to play the guitar, then you got to be ready to learn to practice the guitar. And that's the part that many people don't want to do. They want to skip the practice. It's just one the result. And the result is just a very small part of it. We need to either fall in love or at least embrace the process. So we need to know that it's going to take a lot of hours of playing scales and practicing chords and writing the songs and rewriting them and polishing all these things. I, I, I was watching um, Colbert or Conan, I'm not sure which, the other day, and you know they were, they were on Zoom and they were flashing around the office and he showed a couple of different guitars and Conan's like, oh, I've got three guitars, how many you got? And Colbert, I was like, I don't know, I got one or two guitars, whatever. And uh, uh, Colbert goes, well, how many songs do you play? He goes, none. I don't, I don't play any, I don't play any songs. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> yeah. He, you know, he thought the notion of playing guitar was great, but then the actual learning of the guitar, not so much. Yeah. Um, it's, it's difficult, especially now that we're talking about musical instruments, apparently the violin is like a very difficult instrument to learn or not that is more difficult than others. It just takes longer for you to make a decent sound. So you're playing for months and you still sound horrible and you just got to keep going with, the, with having the faith that one day you're going to sound okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. I, I, you know, back to guitar, like your sounds will be muddy. That E chord, mm -hmm. you know, if it's your little finger on the fourth fret and you're reaching over there, it's going to be on the wrong place. You're not going to pluck the note hard enough. It's going to sound terrible and you're just going to be like, wait a minute, you do it and it sounds perfect. I do it and it doesn't even sound like a note. Yep. Um, all right. So another, exactly. another kind of takeaway for me is around um, the deconstruction. And what I found out is like, so once I'm like, all right, all right, I want to learn the thing, whatever the thing is, like I have to break it down into pieces, parts. Most people have to break it down in pieces, parts. But the yes. most intensity and the, the hardest part of the learning process, I think for me in particular, is that 
breaking down, but it's also the place that I get the most value, right? When I figure out what my little steps mm-hmm. are going to be, not, and by the way, everybody's steps aren't going to be the exact same. You know, different people will view a thing different. They may have different skills that they can bring to it. Um, but, you know, when I, when I think about understanding, which is the, you know, uh, the second step in the process, it is that, that deconstruction uh, or opposite to me, it seems like the opposite of chunking that is yes. of the most value. So uh, the deconstructing comes first and then the chunking comes second. So first you got to break apart the skill into its components. So in the case, as we were talking, playing guitar, then there are chords, there are scales, there's harmony, there's music theory, there are all these different pieces. So you need to figure out what those pieces are and then which ones you're going to start learning first and then putting them together. If you were learning how to cook, there are knife skills and there are use of ingredients, there are different methods of cooking. So basically, whenever you take on a skill, you're, you're trying to learn multiple sub-skills that when put together, we recognize as the skill or craft of something. For example, in cooking, so you have knife skills, ingredients, cooking methods, all these things. Those are all sub-skills that when we put them together, we recognize as, as the art of cooking. But uh, we're always learning little pieces. If you were learning jujitsu, for example, then you have um, arm locks, leg, leg locks, you have chokes, you have all these different things. They're all sub-skills. And you put them together and now it's the art of jujitsu. So that's the idea. First, we have to deconstruct. What are we trying to learn? What are the pieces? And which ones am I going to start to learn first? Then later comes the chunking. You start putting them together. So the construction comes first. Chunking comes after. Yes, yes, yes. I was talking about um, when I'm deconstructing, it's almost like the opposite of chunking. Um, But Mm -hmm. of course, you are considerably more eloquent. Um, All right. I kind of alluded to this third realization on my own, uh, of my own when I was, when I was going through this, um, and kind of studying up for it, there's no substitute for facing the pain and monotony of the repetition that's required to do a thing. You just simply, I mean, you just have to do the work. Anybody who says, Oh, I've got a hack for this. That's that, that's not it. Right. The, the, what's it is doing it. Yes, you have to do the work. Now, a subtlety there is practice is not the same as repetition. So if you're just repeating something over and over, you're not necessarily going to get better. And we can go back to the example of walking. You haven't gotten better at walking for many, many years, even though you repeat it every day. Because you, at one point, you were satisfied with your skill and just stopped trying to improve. So for many people, if they sit down and sticking with the analogy of like playing guitar, if you play the same song you already know day after day, you're not really going to get it much better. If you already know it and you can play it well, you're not trying to improve. You're just repeating the same song. That doesn't make it better. So practice implies that you need to stretch your abilities. You're trying to become better. So an example there would be you put the metronome to go faster. So now you have to play the song faster to get to the actual speed and this is something that a lot of professional musicians they do and classical musicians they speed it up so now they're trying to get to that point where it's perfect or they even speed it up more so once they perform it's not as hard so there are different things to do but you need to be putting the effort to try to get better it's not just punching in the clock you you have to strive to improve totally um one another podcast podcast guest um angela duckworth came on that's the woman who wrote about grit oh amazing yes 
she you book. know she was explaining talking to someone about how her running never got better she's like i've been running forever and it just didn't get any better and he's like well you know do you keep track of your heart rate she's like no she's like yeah like do you keep track of your steps no do you measure anything besides the time no not really and she's like well how how can you possibly expect to get better if there's you know no concentrated effort and i think that brings me to the one of last really big realization i had is that deliberate practice not like you said not repetition deliberate practice it's the only kind of practice right so what what one I, I think yes. it, I think most people know what deliberate practice is, but let's just let, let's level set. Tell, say what deliberate practice is, and then maybe your thoughts on on the importance of. Sure. So all this comes from the research of Kay Anders Ericsson. So he's the kind of the main guy for learning skills and expertise. Um, so in his studies, he figured out like what were the components of a good practice session, and some of the things are, for example, that you have a goal for the practice session. Is not I just, I'm going to show up and go through the moves. Like, what am I trying to improve? So it could be you're learning a song. It's like, this is the song I'm going to be practicing. Or you're uh, working on some trick if you're learning how to skateboard. Okay, so like, this is the trick. This is the move that I'm going to be working on. So the first thing is you have a defined goal for the practice session. Another point is you need to be making effort to get better. You're not just repeating what you already know because that will make it fall into just execution, which is not the same as practice. Another thing is that you know how you're going to get better. So what are the techniques that I need to be practicing to improve? And in the case of music, will be like, what are the scales? And then there is some theory behind it, right? So we know what it needs, what it takes to get better. So in Anderson's words, he says, like, the liberal practice is the kind of practice that it knows, it knows where it's going and it knows how to get there. So we need both things. It can't just be, I'm going to wing it and see if it get better, even if I'm making effort. Like, no, you kind of need to know a plan. How is it exactly that I, I'm going to get better this specific part of the skill that I'm trying to learn? So those things. Then also having a mentor, having a teacher, someone that can I guide you through the process is going to tell you, this is how you get better at this. Like you need to put your arm lower to make a, a throw, for example, in basketball is like, how do you put your elbows? Cause if you don't know, then you're just trying to wing it until the point that you get better. And that's just going to be way, uh, a big waste of time. So all these components kind of fall into practice, but we're not familiar with this information. So we think we just show up and that's going to be enough. It's not. Yeah, I mean, I think about, when I think about it, um, there's a whole bunch of ways to do anything wrong, right? And you can spend a whole lot of time going through each one of those, deciding that it's not quite right. Um, but getting to the optimal experience, having someone put their finger on what is exactly right, um, and getting to that and doing that over and over and over, uh, way more efficient, right? Yes. Way more valuable. Yes, much more. Um, all right. So, um, once we've learned a thing, um, our quest kind of evolves a little bit, um, to include improvement, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's, you know, as I see it, there's two really big keys to improvement. There's probably many, but there's two really big keys. One of them is, um, using metrics, uh, and data to 
analyze a performance and get feedback from that performance. Oh, actually, those are two. The metric-based data analysis and feedback. Let's separate those. Um, yes. But let's talk about each one of those individually, right? So the, 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 the first question is metrics-based data analysis. That's, I think that's pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, straight, Performance is essentially translated into some kind of thing that's measurable. You mm -hmm. collect that data. And the more granular you can be, probably the better. But the truth is, it's actually not as simple as that. Can you give a little bit more color on what's the right way to do kind of metrics-based data analysis? Sure. So the two things actually go hand in hand, feedback and metrics. So we're always getting feedback. It's just, it's on us to decide to gather that feedback and interpret that feedback um, and within that feedback is that's when we set some metrics and one very easy example would be bodybuilding. So bodybuilders, they keep track of different things. So number of reps, the weights, um, and literal measurements of their body parts. So like, what is the size of my bicep? And then they're, they're tracking this as they go along for them to look back and say, am I making any progress? And if not, now I need to make a change. So the feedback is the hey, was I able to lift a heavier weight? And then the metric is, what was the weight I was lifting before? So they kind of both go hand in hand. But we need those metrics for any kind of skill we're learning. And we'll figure it out because it's, it's different for every skill. But in all of them, we can find something to track and say, like, it's, am I getting better? And that's what we need to know. Um, a way that teaches us, yes, you're making progress, or no, something is wrong. And when you find out that you're not making any progress, then you go back and look at the way you're learning and say, okay, what needs to change? But if, if we never get some feedback, if we never have any metrics, we will never know. We could be doing something wrong forever. And that's yeah. the end of the story. So, so, I mean, I think the important thing though, or an important thing among it is which, you know, in the bodybuilding example is a good one. Um, you know, if you were just to measure the size of your bicep, well, you know, that might not be a, a really good, that might not be the right indicator, right? It may be your, you know, units of pressure that you can create, or it may be the um, subtlety or tone. There might be a whole bunch of other things, or at least subset of things that are as important or more important to know. Um, you know, in addition, the collection of that data, it's not necessarily easy, right? I mean, you know, playing guitar, for example, you might record yourself mm -hmm. and see what you're doing wrong, but is the, you know, is the metric, can you play it at speed song? Is the metric, you know, um, how clean are your notes? Like th that stuff is yes. really hard. That data is really hard to come by. Um, and then, you know, actually being able to take that data and go, ha ha, you know what? here's what I'm doing wrong. I need to, you know, make the following adjustment or correction um, in order to get better. I, th I, I mean, I think, I think that the, I think that you can get caught up in your data unless you really are doing it again in, in, a, in an intelligent way. Mm -hmm. I think you touched on a great point on this. What is your goal? So in the example of bodybuilding, um, so maybe for the 
the bodybuilder who doesn't care about strength, then measuring the, the size of the bicep, it's more important than the amount of reps or the amount of weight. Although they usually kind of go hand in hand, but um, that person will focus more on the measurement because that's just trying to get bigger. But for someone that wants to get stronger, then the more valuable metric is, am I lifting heavier weights? Now, in the case of guitar, like, am I playing faster? You can do that easily with a metronome. It's like, can I keep up with a faster uh, beep? Or if you want clearer sound, then you will need the help of someone else. Like if you can't tell yourself if you're getting better or not, then you need to show those recordings to your teacher and be like, does this sound clearer? Is this better? Mm -hmm. So it does really depend on what your goal is. Um, and that's going to make a difference. So yes, we choose the metrics depending on our goals. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and be thoughtful about the analysis of those as well. Um, yes. So feedback, as you said, is the other part and feedback can be, feedback can be a lot of things, right? Um, feedback can be your coach telling you something. Feedback can be, Hey, you know, my three mile time is, you know, eight minutes and 50 seconds a mile. I ran the first mile or the, you know, the first mile at, you know, four seconds faster. All right. That, you know, I took in w liquid 45 minutes before I did that mile. Therefore, you know, that seems to be an input in improving my initial, you know, there's, there's a bunch of different types of feedback, right? That's what I, that's what I'm trying to get yes. to. Um, feedback loops are slightly different. Um, they can be, I guess, process or outcome. Um, the important thing to me in terms of feedback seems to be translation into kind of a concrete action, kind of back to that notion of what do I do? Yes, um, that, that's the idea. That's the idea. But so let's talk about the the feedback loop and the different ways to get sure, feedback. Sure, that'd be great. So, so depending on the skill, then you'll have a, a different way to get that feedback. So in the case of guitar, then is is recordings. Um, like, am I playing better? And this is something that a lot of a top athletes do now, or they've always done, is they watch a lot of film. Like, they want to see how they're playing. Same for actors and same for many different professions and crafts. Um, and what's interesting is that some people don't, don't search for that feedback. It's, for example, let's say I want to get better at interviewing and you're not listening to your previous interviews. Like, how do you expect to get better if you're not analyzing what you've done in the past? Uh, but many people don't like that. They don't want to see video of themselves or a recording of themselves because it's uncomfortable. And I know it's uncomfortable, but we need to get past that. Like we don't like listening to our own voice, but how do we know we're getting better, vocalizing better, having better intonation? If you're not listening to your own voice, you have to do it. it it's very uncomfortable, but it's necessary. So, um, and then we need that feedback loop to be the shortest possible. So let's say... Uh, you finish a recording and right away you want to see it. You want to listen to it. What did I do wrong? They, and top performers insist on getting their feedback really fast because that's how they get better. They don't want to spend more time making the same mistake. And now imagine, imagine for example, you're learning to sing, but then you couldn't hear yourself until five minutes later. So you have to sing, but you can't hear anything until five minutes later. Or you're painting something on the canvas and you can't see the line until a day later. How do you expect to get any better? That's impossible. Like the feedback loop would be way too long. So there are very prof some professions and some crafts that have immediate feedback. 
It's like, okay, you can listen to yourself as you're singing, or you can listen to the recording right away. But some other ones that you don't get to see until a long time later. So we're trying to short that feedback loop as short as it can be. So we figured out what mistakes we're making and start fixing them right away. Particularly if it's a, something physical, right? Your voice or a swing or whatever. How mm. can you possibly associate the muscle memory with the feedback if it's been too long? I mean, yes. If it's been uh, actually more than, you know, a handful of minutes, you know, I would think yes. it'd be difficult. But you know, difficult. one thing that you, in your answer there, that was really important, and I think it's time that we touch on it, is let's take a moment to talk about mistakes, right? In, sure. Y- y- you've got, everyone says you've got to make mistakes, right? Some people will be like, no. Oh, I don't have to make mistakes. Um, some people just purely don't want to make mistakes, right? And they won't, mm-hmm. they won't stretch out um, and dare to make some mistakes. Um, what, what, you know, in, terms of, in terms of learning, what do you think about mistakes? So this is a great subject. And in any learning, there are going to be mistakes. They're inevitable. They're part of the learning process process. And in fact, they are a good thing in many aspects. One, when you're making mistakes, you know that you're pushing yourself. So you're trying to get better. If you get things right all the time, you're not demanding more of yourself. So in fact, not making mistakes would be a problem. It's like, hey, you're not, you're not pushing yourself enough. Um, so that's one of the things, but we have this really bad relationship with mistakes that we feel we take them too personally. You start thinking, I am a failure, or I'm not good at this. I don't have the talent. When in reality, it should just be a kind of a snapshot in time where you say, I'm not good at this yet, but am I getting better? So then if you're making less mistakes, it's like, okay, I'm getting better at this. And one of the things that I want to make very clear is I'm not advocating mistakes. I'm advocating courage, which will bring mistakes but as a side effect, not as a goal. So I would never tell someone, go out and make mistakes. It's not go out and be courageous and push yourself. You're going to have to face mistakes. But the goal is not to make the mistake. It's just to push. But it's inevitable that you're going to make mistakes along the way. Yeah, and you're referring to mindset, right? You're referring to the, the state of, let's take maximal um, advantage of these mistakes. Let's get every piece of information and learning we can out of them if, that, if that's what we have to do. Yes. And mistakes shape you too, because mistakes are telling you what's not working. Yeah. So you need them. Yeah. And they're an important part of the process. It's, it's unavoidable. It's just, we need to renegotiate the relationship we have with mistakes. They're just part of the process. We need to go through them. It's annoying. Yes. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever made a mistake and feel good about it, but then you use that information to get better. So that's the point. We need to keep in mind that we're trying to improve and mistakes will help us get there. So yes, don't like it if you don't want to. I'm not telling you to, but use it and don't make it personal. Yeah, I'm afraid that that's societal. You know, I'm afraid that people, you know, making mistakes is bad. Oh, we don't want to do yes. that. Um, hopefully we'll change that. Um, okay, good. I'm glad we talked about mistakes in general. Um, the third level, and I, we, we started to, I knew we would talk about this, is it's that moment where learning gets elevated, um, and you've mastered a thing, right? So this is when you've got enough practice, you've got enough experience, um, that we process the inputs differently, right? Things change, right? Things become intuitive. Um, 
a feel, we can start to feel things as opposed, you know, like sense things as opposed to, um, you know, needing to put it into process. Um, we can, we can anticipate, we can almost, almost extrapolate things into the future and th that just becomes more normal. Um, tell us, uh, what you can about, uh, becoming the master of something. Sure. So uh, the point of mastery, mastery is just a point in the learning spectrum. It's a high point in the learning spectrum, but it's still learning. It's still improving and getting better. It's just that you got to a level that is very high. And as a society, that's what we consider to be mastery. Like that person is the master of something. No, it's just very advanced in the learning spectrum. And we call that mastery. But it has this magical quality to it because they seem to fuse with their craft. They see things that we can't. Um, it, it, this craft, it just seems embedded in their way of thinking. And that's why it's so magical. That's what we have this admiration for anyone that's a master of something. But it, there's nothing magical about the process itself. It's, it follows the same thing. It's just practice, improvement, and sticking with it, doing the work every day until you get to a level where everyone else is like, wow, that's way beyond what everyone else can achieve. So that's kind of the sense of mastery, but there's really no magic behind it and we can get there ourselves, but there is a process and we have to be willing to commit the time and the energy. The hard part about reaching mastery is in a sense, it, it doesn't really take much. It's just a couple of hours of practice. The problem is doing it day after day after day for years. That is the tough part. It's not the one single day and you're cramming all you can. No, it's just a couple of hours a day. But can you sustain it over the long term? Can you go through the frustrations and be resilient and stand back up and keep going? Um, there is this story. I don't think I talk about it in the book, but I saw this documentary of uh, Usain Bolt. And he was practicing for the, uh, what was it? I think it was the Rio Olympics. And at one point he's running and then he stops and he starts throwing up. And then he keeps running. Like it's nothing. I'm like, wait, what? So then they're interviewing him. It's like, yeah, well, that, that happens. And I thought a part of me wanted to believe that they added that just for dramatic purposes to make him seem larger than life. But no, it, it's, that's how he is. Uh, but we don't think about him that way. We always see him running and smiling and kind of playing around. But no, his practice is extreme. And he said so. Like for the Rio Olympics, right after he had lost... Uh, some race uh, against um, Blake. And he said, for the following month, the amount of work that I put in, I was throwing up every single day because I was pushing myself to the max. And that's when you look back and you say, I don't put that kind of effort. It's not that he's just a genetic freak. No, he's mostly just a freak because most people don't push their bodies to that point. But that's what it takes. And we need to know that. If we want to master any skill, we need to sacrifice ourselves to it. So one way that I think about it is the gods of mastery require human sacrifice. And it kind of come from anyone else but you. There's so much, you know, there's so many, I have so many reactions to that. The first is on the other side of that is self-satisfaction. Like the, you know, when you feel like you're not going to quit learning, I don't think masters ever quit learning, but when you get to the point where you know that you can anticipate, um, and sense and feel and things become more automatic, there's a self-satisfaction in that, that has got to be, 
you know, worth it, I would think, worth it. Um, yes. I, I, you know, you had a, in the book, there was a great thing about Hendrix. And he's like, yeah, some days, like, you're not even going to want to, you know, you just don't want to pick up the guitar. You don't want to play. <laughs> and, and, but that if you yes. stay with it, and I'm, I'm thinking, really? Hendrix? Like, uh-huh. the, the, like the guitar god who just seems like it's preordained, you know, yes. and, and he's getting yeah. frustrated with playing his guitar. Uh-huh. Um, the well, other well, one we I don't liked, imagine that. Actually, I'm not sure if it was in the book. It was Ali. And he goes, I don't even start counting until it hurts. Okay, yeah. And you also said, I hated every minute of training, but I said to myself, keep at it. And then you get to, then you, what was it like? Suffer now and then live forever as a champion. Something like that. I'm butchering the quote, but it was something like that. He's like, I hated every minute of training. And another example, I didn't add this in the book because he's, he's not probably well known just um, for anyone that doesn't like heavy metal, but he's an amazing guitar player and he won multiple awards as like one of the best guitar players, but he plays metal. I just, which is my jam. And they were interviewing him and they say like, how did you get to be so good? And his answer was, you know, sometimes I'm recording an album and it's maybe 10 hours of playing. And then by the end of the day, you hate the guitar. You don't want to see it again. So I get home and I throw it in the corner. I'm like, I'm fed up. I don't want to see this thing. I hate it. I just, I just need to relax and do something I enjoy. So I pick up the guitar again and I play. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's my job, is my hobby, is my everything. Oh yeah. What, 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 what's the name of that guitar player? Alexi Laiho. His band is Children of Bottom. Oh, there we go. So there's some things about, um, there's just tips, I think, um, on what you can do when you kind of are about to embark on becoming a master. I, you know, mm. I can list them for you, but I'm sure you could list them all yourselves. You know, why don't we, why sure. don't we at least make sure that we give the educational portion to people? You know, what are um, good tips uh, on what to do to become a master? Yes. So I'll consider them more as, as strategies. So it's like things that we can follow because it's a process. So there's no one single thing that is just going to um, do the job. So it's like, different behaviors that are eventually going to take us on the path of mastery. One of them is studying and emulating the masters. So if you really like writing, then you need to read the people you admire and then deconstructing how they organize the chapters, the story, um, the characters, how they build them, studying the people that are really good already at the craft and like, what do they do and why do they do it that way? And this is a very important point for anyone learning chess, for example. So chess players, even though we think about it as a game of two people, then very serious chess students, they spend a lot of time alone studying games from the past, not just their own, but also games from the masters and like trying to put themselves in their shoes and be like, why did this person make, what is the next move? And then if, if it's not the move that they were thinking, it's like, why did the master make this other move? What was this person thinking? So they spend a lot of time studying already great chess players. And that's something we need to do as well. So whatever the craft you're going into is you study the masters and you start emulating them. And at the beginning, it's going to feel a little bit like you're copying someone else. But eventually, and this is a advice from Stephen King, he says, don't worry about copying the voice and the style of another writer. Soon enough, you're going to shed those skins and let your own show. So at the beginning, we... That's a proven way to learn anything you imitate. And that's just a natural way of the brain to learn. You imitate someone else and then you develop your own style and you figure out some other ways to do it. But at the beginning, you're just trying to imitate. 
So that's one. Um, another one is just doing the work. A lot of going on the path of mastery is doing the work every day. So every single day you're putting in that work, you're trying to get better and you don't get discouraged when it gets difficult. You just keep showing up. And there is this great line from George St. Pierre is a UFC multiple champion. I don't think he's fighting anymore. He's from here from Montreal. And he was saying the days you don't want to practice, the, way, the days you don't want to go to the gym, those are the days that matter. Those are the days you need to show up. Not because you're going to improve too much, but because it's going to build your character. Because that's what's going to set you up to always show up. Probably if you don't feel like it, it's not going to be much progress. You're going to hate it. But it, it's really important that you still show up. So that's an important one is doing the work every day. Yep. One that I liked is um, if you can practice with masters, right? Assuming that they're mm -hmm. yes. better than you, right? They, they can only lift your game. Yes. So yeah, uh, training partners. So that helps a lot. It depends on different skills, but usually if you join the crafts community, so if, you, if you're involved in the craft and you're around people that practice it, that execute it, that are in there, then they're going to pull you up. If they're better, like you're going to try to catch up and that's, that's going to stretch you. So it's even better to hang out with people that are better than you because now you put in more effort. So yes, it feels good if you're around people that are not that good, but that's just an ego thing. If you really want to get better, then you seek out people that are better than you. And those are the ones that are going to push you farther. Yeah. Look, Nick, that's the last question I had specifically from the book, but I, I always like to open it up at the end to folks just to like let them say a couple of things. Um, is there some, something about this topic uh, that maybe that we didn't cover that you think is Im important that you, you know, would like to address, right? You'd like to put your two cents in on. There is something that I really like uh, towards the end, which is the concept of Kaizen. So this is a, a Japanese word for improvement, but it also became this concept for a never ending improvement. And I think that's the idea behind all mastery is like all masters, they don't see themselves as masters. They see themselves as apprentices and that remains for the entire lives. They're all, they know that there is always more to learn, more to improve and more to do. So that's the attitude we should always have. Others may call us masters, but we should never do so ourselves. We should always remain apprentices of ourselves and our craft. So there's this beautiful uh, quote from Jiro Ono. He's, he's the, the sushi chef, the first sushi chef to get a three-star Michelin and for many, considered the best sushi chef in the world. And he said that uh, he's been making sushi for over, I, don't, I think it's like, what, 70 years, 60 years, something like that. And it's like, to this point, I don't think I've mastered sushi yet. Every day I come here, I'm trying to get better. And his example is amazing. When I was, um, there's this documentary about him. I think it's called Jiro Drinks of Sushi. And I recommend it for, for anyone. It's amazing. And at one point he says, well, later in my life, I started wearing gloves. And I thought, well, that makes sense because you're dealing with vinegar and all this stuff. So it's probably going to ruin your hands. And then he explains like, no, I started wearing gloves for everything else that was not making sushi because I wanted to make sure that when I was making sushi, my hands were in top condition to notice the consistency of the rice and the vinegar and all this stuff. Like, oh my God, <laughs> that has to be the craziest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And that's mastery. That's someone that is committed fully to a craft. Yeah. That's what we should aspire to. Devotion. 
Yes, absolute um, devotion. Where, yeah, you know, where people who are listening to this podcast, where where do they seek you out? Um, do you uh, work with people as a coach? Do you, anything like that? Not for now. I just wanted to concentrate on the book. I wanted to put this information out there because it's the book that I wish existed when I became so obsessed with learning. And initially it was not going to be a published book. I was just writing something for myself. And at one point I figured if I'm putting all this work to solve it for me, I might as well just solve it, solve it for other people. So no, I write on my blog. So if people want to find me, that's probably the easiest place is unlimitedmastery.com. And it has all the links for my social media and other places. So unlimitedmastery.com, that's the easiest. And for people that are interested in the book, it's on Amazon, it's Barnes & Noble, everywhere books are sold. You know, the blog, this, this book, um, what other materials, if there are any, maybe there's not, um, materials that you would recommend besides your book? I would say there are a couple of books now on learning. Um, I think Jim Quick, Limitless, and Ultra Learning, Scott Young. They're both good. Um, I enjoy the books. I have a, a different approach and mostly is the geared towards learning skills. And I wanted it to, to be kind of a guide that people could carry around and kind of jump into these strategies. So the book is divided into principles and strategies. I think there is also a very good course. I believe it's on Coursera. It's called Learning How to Learn. It's a very popular uh, course on the subject. So those will be some good resources for anyone because um, some people like different writing styles. So maybe someone would like a limitless or ultra learning better. Maybe they, it speaks to them better. Maybe some people are looking for learning how to learn in the sense of how do I get better grades? How do I study for university? Which is not exactly what I talk about. I talk about learning skills and specifically people that want to take on a hobby or someone that was looking to make a change in careers. Maybe they're working in accounting, but always dreamed about being a, a professional writer. They just don't know how to go about it. How do they master this skill? So that's what I focused on. But there are a few resources out there and they're good. Well, um, like I said, I think your approach, it feels almost like a, it feels like a, a guide. It feels like a manual, like a step-by-step. -step. And I, yeah, I think... Um, if, yeah, if you are into, if, if, if this is going to be process driven for people, this is a really good source. So, uh, Nick, this, th that's the end thank for you. now. Um, thank you. I, you know, as I said, I thought this is a really unique conversation for Intangibles podcast because it, it is so practical. Um, and you know, I just want to tell you that I appreciate your kind of thoughts and straightforward guidance here. It's really helpful to me. I'm sure it's really helpful to a lot. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thanks a lot for having me. All right. Till next time. This has been Intangibles. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and many other podcast platforms. You can also find it at its home on the web, which is www.intangiblespodcast.com. I'm Steve Berg. Thank you. Keep an eye out for the next episode.